0: Welcome back to Fuel Your Legacy. We're bringing you another incredible guest, Douglas Terrell. Really, his mission and his passion is even more incredible than uh, where he's from, in my opinion. Um, terrells he's, hes a television actor, right? So he's been uh, on The Affair, Mister. Robart, The American Blue Blood, so The Americans, Blue Bloods, Person of Interest, um, and he actually was in The Cobbler, um, just an incredible movie. Now, even he's a producer. And he's produced a a one man play, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's a one man play uh, called "The American Soldiers' Journey Home," which commemorates the ending of the first world war, um, and he's finished filming the web TV uh, series "A Landing Home," in which he wrote and directed it and tells the story of a veteran having a hard time adjusting military life. so I'm excited to to be able to share this with you because I think it's a every one of us if we don't know somebody who's serving in the military, we should know somebody who's serving in the military. And this is a very real uh, concern or real thing about most people who have served. So I'm excited to have you on here, Douglas, and go ahead and share a little bit, bit of your background, how you got into acting and, and why, uh, the American soldier, what, what about that is, are you so passionate about? So
1: I got into, I've been acting professionally here in New York for about 20 years. I'm originally from Texas, from Houston. Um, but I came to New York, um, Trying to pursue the dream, and um, I got into acting in college. It was very cliche. It was over a girl that I had a crush on, and I wanted to impress her. And I thought being part of a school play would be would would do the thing. And uh, you know, the 10 cent version is like I got bit by the acting bug, and then I never got I never got rid of it. Being here in New York, I actually was I, I came out of the Twin Towers probably uh, 10 minutes before the first plane hit. So. I was kind of, I was in the financial district when I was working there when I was a young actor. Um, and so I was really, as the rest of the nation was, I was affected by by the event. So I decided to um, kind of to, to do something with, with my, my talents. So I wrote this play called The American Soldier. And we were heavy in the Middle East, I guess around 2005, 2006. We were reading a lot in the newspapers about what veterans were going through and how they were struggling either sued through suicide or financial problems or just challenges they were having. And I just thought it was kind of unfair. So I went to the New York Public Library and I had this crazy idea of creating a play based on the American Revolution. And I kind of created this project from that nucleus. The play has kind of, the it's become an artistic mission for myself um, to kind of keep reminding people of what veterans and their families go through and have gone through. That's awesome. So I'm curious, how often, I mean, because it's been years since it was created initially,
0: um, are you updating it? Are you uh re rewriting it in little parts to make it more impactful for today's current issues, or is it kind of just a, a, a snapshot of something in the past?
1: There are a couple letters that I want to put in there that um I don't know when I'll be able to because I'm already like in November I'm performing it twice and and then Next year, I already have like six cities lined up. So the play keeps it keeps so busy that it doesn't allow me to kind of re, rebake it in a way that makes sense.
0: Sure. What about acting? Really took your interest and said, "No, this is exactly where I want to be. I feel like I can fulfill my legacy, my purpose."
1: So when I got to college and I st- I got into acting, once I fell in love with what acting was. I um, mean, I was when I was my freshman year in college, um, I was just really kind of you know rudderless, so to say, and didn't have really directions, Didn't know what I was going to do, and then. Um, I remember very clearly an actor standing up saying, Hey, there's auditions for this children's theater. Once I auditioned, I was always really good at being really, uh, playful and kind of funny. And so the director liked what I was doing. And she said, Hey, you know, you're, you're pretty good at at this, you know, if I like to cast you and I, and she, and then she cast me in another play. And then she said, you know, if you major in theater, I'll give you a scholarship and you can, and you'll, you can study theater. I was able to develop a real passion for it. And, um, I was pretty good at it in college. So I, as they said, the bug bit me. And then that was pretty much once I graduated college, I knew what I was going to do. I knew there was nothing else that I could do um, at that time. I was a double major. So I had opportunities to go into business. Um, I was doing an internship for life North uh, Northwestern Mutual Life. And I, they had offered me a real job, paid you real money. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember very clearly going into the interview in a tie and thinking, this is not something I want to do for the rest of my life. It's just not what I want to do. And I told my father, I said, I'm going to turn the job down. And at that time, they had these general auditions. And I auditioned for this, what they call summer stock theater. And you audition and you get cast for the summer. Um, and I was given a job up in North Carolina, paying me 125 bucks a week to be an actor slash dancer. And I took it. And that was my first contract. That was my first real job. And uh, to this day, it's some of the most blissful memories I think about as a young actor because I was free. I was open. I had, you know, really no, no responsibility. I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. All I was doing is making 125 bucks a week and acting up in North Carolina. And I was completely in love. And then, you know, that contract ended and, and I knew there was nothing else I could do. Um, and a lot of times when people ask me, could you do anything else? I personally couldn't because it would be, to me personally, it would be spiritual suicide. Um, there's not much else I could do. I just, I just wouldn't be very happy at it. And you know, to me, at the end of the day, what's really important is that you're doing something that you absolutely love. Because it, it's, it's never really beneficial to do anything for only the money. Um, and that's when life really kind of presents its problems towards you. Um, Stresses happen, and um, you're never feeling fulfilled, and it, they lead you into dark places. And I know many people who have gone through those avenues. And I've just been very fortunate that I've always known instinctively pursue what I love. And it's been, and it's paid me back. I mean, it's, uh, as I say, the acting gods have been, have been kind to me. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. I love that phrase. I don't think I've ever heard it um, in
1: context of this, but I think that's so true. You have to be insane to do it because it's hard. And if you had any sanity, you'll quit. Um, And and the rejection is so relentless and is so, it, it comes at you in such high quantity that if you don't absolutely love this or whatever else you're doing and believing in, um, you're not going to have the endurance to finish. And that is usually the thing that anybody can take away from this conversation is that you have to absolutely believe in what you want to do to have the endurance to finish it um, and to be fulfilled in life. Yeah, exactly. I love that you said you have to be
0: insane because every great person They had a vision for what was going to come before it was ever reality. And they chose, keyword being chose, to live in their future, to live in the vision of their future rather than where they were at today. And because nobody else can see your vision and your future other than you, or at least as clearly as you can, then you appear as insane. Yet I would argue you're the only sane person around because you're
1: actually Engaging in creation rather than reacting to your surrounding. So many people told me no, that if I would have listened to them and not focused on the first step, which was actually to memorize just one letter, the play would have never become what it is today. And I was able to really just basically, you know, tune them out, tune them out and listen to my voice and really just completely only listened to myself and said, you know what, no one knows what to do with it. Everyone is telling me, no, I'm going to focus on one thing right now that I have control over and I'm going to start showing people something that I can create with it. And then from there, the yeses started to come. Then I got a director who was really interested in the work and I got a director who said, you know, that's really powerful stuff that you have. You know, you have any more. And I only got my first yes to a festival because someone dropped out of a festival. And that first yes gave me an opening. And now people look at the play, you know, being at the Kennedy Center a couple of times and touring and, and, and the response it gets. And now I get invitations and people don't, they think, they think that that's where I, you st- you, I started from with the play, but they don't see the incredible amount of no's that you're going to get in the beginning. And you just have to have that complete insane, insane stubbornness to push through. And whatever it is you're pushing through, not to focus on what other people are going to value or what people are going to think about it, because it's really never your job to judge it. It's your job to create it and let other people judge it. Cause they will always judge whatever you create, especially in the art, not worrying about if people are going to think um, what you're creating is, has any value, if it's stupid or not, or if you're going to get laughed at, you know, because that usually is when you start listening to your ego. When you start listening to your ego, then that's when you start making really bad decisions, and you don't really follow through on what you're trying to do, and you start second guessing yourself, and you start saying, "Ah, it's probably not a good idea anyway," and you talk yourself out of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's interesting. This, this, uh I just talked to a friend about this, but the idea of no. Um, sometimes people either get discouraged by no, or they they hear the the kind of three feet from gold perspective, which yeah. is just like just keep going, just keep going. And I think what's interesting that you mentioned is um, when you heard no, you didn't just keep trying to offer the same thing over and over and over and over. Every time you heard a no, or maybe not every time, but you know, made adjustments to what you were offering to right. make it more appealing to accept. And I think so many people think, well, three feet from gold just says keep doing the same thing. I'm like no, you keep doing the same thing that you know nobody wants. That's ridiculous. That's insanity, right? That's insanity. That's insanity, right? But if you're going to get a no, the end goal is, I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be in the Kennedy Center. I'm going to be traveling the world doing this way. That's the goal. Now, That's the goal. Now, how that shows up is really, as you said, dictated by your subjective audience. And so if somebody says no to the first version of it, then you just create a new version. You create, create a new version, create a new version until somebody says, yes, that happens in family life, dating. doesn't matter.
1: Everything. Ever, you have to have the ability to. It's a it's a fine balance, but you have to have the ability to be stubborn and at the same time to listen, right? So you know you're pushing through to the end goal, but you have to have the flexibility and uh, the ability to to take criticism and feedback and say, okay, I'm hearing the same note over and over and over. I should make. I should turn forty five degrees, or I should adjust the combination of what I'm trying to create, right? So when people would tell me no, and especially directors, I would always say, well, I appreciate your time. If you don't know, if you're not interested in it, do you know anybody else who might be interested in it? And, and a lot of times just by continually pushing through and asking for more yeses, right? You start finding enough people who believe in what you're doing to cultivate to get you to what your end goal is. But, you know, no is just a temporary opinion. It's not a, de- when I first performed the play, the reviewers were, they, they kept saying, I got forced, for, I got really good reviews and I got some really mixed reviews in the beginning. And, but they, all the reviewers had one, like they had one, no, they kept saying the reviewers and I had a playwright, a really smart guy. And I said, you know, I don't know if I should listen to these reviewers or, or should I just kind of throw it away, you know? And he said, "You well, if they're all telling you this, the same thing, there is, there is some, it's it's worth paying attention to what that criticism is. And so they were saying like the play wasn't teaching them something. They kept saying that it kept saying like the play didn't really educate me in a way. They didn't teach me it Had a powerful voice. It was very emotionally, it was very well crafted, very well acted. It didn't feel like I was learning anything. So I sat back and I started going through the play and was going through all the monologues that I had. And instead of realizing that I wasn't, I, I wasn't teaching the audience of what was really going inside. With what a veteran sees, feels inside, internally. And so I went back to the drawing boards with my director and I said, you know, I need to add some more stuff to it. And that's really when the play took off. But I would have never been able to get where I'm at today if I hadn't had the flexibility and not have the ego to say, I'm right, you're wrong. They're wrong, I'm right, and ignore their responses and re- and ignore their criticism. And that's a really... That's a very valuable thing for anybody to take for creating anything. You know, you have to be, uh, if you're getting the same note, listen to it. Um, yeah. It's really important to have that flexibility. I, I've seen some, I've seen sometimes when you hear those complaints
0: um, or or constructive feedback, whatever, yeah. um, sometimes the response is you need to actually, it, it's good response because although I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, but, Basically, in any endeavor, you need to create tribes. You need to create separation between the yeah. things that people like and things that people don't. And as you said, identify if it resonates with you. If it resonates with you, but it's not resonating with other people, okay. and we're going to put the other people in quote, in, in, uh, quote marks, because um, that just means that they're not your people. And sometimes you actually need to blow that thing that nobody likes. You need to blow that up and make it even more standing out so that people understand why it's there um rather than remove it and, and not give somebody the contrast but give somebody more of the contrast and once somebody has more of the contrast then they can gain that understanding they can learn oh this is why that those those lines are in there because it's literally how somebody's feeling not just a story but these are the feelings and feelings yeah. are rarely unanimous there's almost in almost every feeling there's going to be some contrast that that's just the nature of humanity, and so um, it, it is a delicate balance. I'm curious. Uh, for me, I've I've had to adopt forms of meditation and things to get past naysayers in the early years. How did you really learn to put down the naysayer and, and say, "Look, I'm not going to worry about your negative feedback"? Did you have meditations? Did you have practices or rituals that you used to, to bolster your confidence at the same time as
1: taking their feedback and say, okay, what, what can I alter? But I, I would write where my dreams are. I would always write where my dreams are. Um, And I used to keep a diary, a physical diary, and I would write, you know, this, this is, this is what, these are my dreams. This is where I hope um, I am in five years, where I am in 10 years. And I would try to foresee that. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious
0: for people who maybe haven't heard of this play or want to see this play, um, give us a little bit more information of how we can get in touch with you if we want to watch the the short series or whatever. How do we
1: get in touch? How do we watch what you're doing? Support you in your endeavors. The website is called uh, www soldier show dot com. The American Soldier Solo dot com. Uh, and in November, I'll be at the Kennedy Center on the 13th, and then I'll be in Cape Cod, and then in January, I'm potentially supposed to go to LA, and then um, I will be in North Carolina. Uh, On Veterans Day, and then um, in Chicago on Memorial Day, and there's a couple other cities. But if you go to the website and you sign up, and you're interested in the project, um, or if you're interested in the play coming to your city or your state, you know you can go to my website and contact me there. And but um, it's been an incredible honor now because I mean, like I said, i probably from what started out as an idea, I've now performed this play for over 10,000 audience and veterans, and uh, I receive letters from veterans all the time, and. And I've become friends with a lot of veterans and they all ask me to keep going. So something that started as just a simple idea on a piece of paper that I wanted to tell the story for veterans now has become this artistic mission that I could have never, ever in a million years would have thought it would be giving me back so much in return. That's awesome. And are you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Where's the yeah, best place? Yeah. yeah. So um, on Twitter, Twitter and Instagram are um, at Douglas Terrell. Then my Facebook page is Douglas Terrell.
0: Um, is it something that you do all by yourself or do you have supporting staff and stage set and stuff that take, how many people does it take to actually put on this play?
1: Uh, it's just me. It's basically me and uh, an army trunk, a World War II authentic army trunk, a six by nine American flag. And I play 14 characters play men women and children um i play many different accents and um one cost i use one costume and i kind of manipulate it into many different um costume changes and i tell stories i I tell 14 characters from every conflict and i try to kind of give a homage of what being associated to a family member who's been in combat or being a veteran who's come back from combat wow that's that's awesome i'm gonna Hopefully, I'll be in a city where it's playing. That'd be fun to watch. And so what? what's one more secret that you believe would contributes to your success? Uh, a stubbornness. I just, I've always had the ability to ignore people. Um, I, I think, you know, you can develop that skill, but I think that's the one thing that I've always, I've been blessed with, that I can just uh, focus on my voice and on my mission. And that, to me, is all that matters. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, we're going to pretend you're dead and you get to view your
0: great, 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 great grandchildren, six generations down. Sitting around a table discussing your legacy. What do you want them to be saying six generations now, uh, six generations away about Douglas?
1: He went after his dreams. I
0: love it. Simple, short, sweet, direct. Um, went after his dreams, and you can too. Yeah, and that and that's all you need. So, thank you so much, Douglas, for for coming on the show and sharing this.
1: I'm excited to to see where this goes. Thank you, man. Thank you for for um, having um, for the opportunity to share my story with you guys. Yeah, no problem. We'll catch you guys next time on Fuel Your Legacy.